great songs this morning, great songs. Thank you, worship team. Would you join me, uh, Matthew chapter 10, one more time. I think this is our fifth time in chapter 10 as we're going through the book of Matthew. And as you're turning there, uh, let me uh, kind of piggyback on something that Brandon said earlier, uh, but I'm going to particularly target a group of people. Um, if you are the parent or a grandparent that brings uh, any of our children or students, middle school, high school, I really want to encourage you. Uh, again, you may be online and you're regularly here, and I'm talking to our regularly um, attending or previous to COVID attending people. Uh, you really want to make sure that you're on our mailing list because I'm pretty sure uh, that's uh, we have a special announcement, an offer even that will include our children and middle school, high school students. And you're going to want to at least have opportunity to hear about that, uh, but we're not going to announce it here, okay? You'll be getting that through those uh, a little more in-house methods. And so I want to encourage you, if you're not on that, uh, then get on it. Make sure you're getting the emails. Uh, we don't want anyone upset, like, hey, I never heard about that, and what's going on? And like, did you get the email? No, well, okay, that's how that, why that happened. So help us out there. All right, in a moment. So you're Matthew chapter 10. You got your Bible. Uh, just kind of leave it open there, the whole service. As far as I know, unless something, the Lord does something unusual, we will be focusing our attention only on this chapter. Uh, I will refer a couple of times to some previous verses, and you just kind of be able to glance over there. They won't be on the screen, but our main body of text uh, is the last, I think, nine or ten verses, nine verses. Uh, those will be on the screen here at the outset. Um, so kind of recapping very, very briefly, Jesus has seen that the crowds gather around him, and it causes such a need. That he tells people to pray earnestly to the Father to send forth laborers into the field. The harvest is plentiful, plentiful, but we need more laborers. He prays to the Father, and then he calls 12 apostles that he's going to multiply his ministry by sending them out. So they're going, this is the second great, great discourse in the book of Matthew. So like the first four verses was saying that he called them and empowered them, and then he's going to send them, but the rest of the chapter is him giving instructions to people that he's sending out. And so this is now really after the first four verses, this is our fourth dive into this discourse and instruction. I mean, it's just straight, full throttle, Jesus talking. And today, part of what we're going to look at is kind of a classic passage in Scripture. And so here's where it's coming. He says, I'm going to send you out. You're going to be like sheep among wolves. And we, he, he, for two or three weeks, we've noticed persecution is coming to those who are the followers of Christ, who are evangelistic and tell people about Christ. Probably even more so to those who go to foreign lands as pioneer missions, frontier missions. Expect persecution. Endure it. Be innocent. Don't cause it on purpose. Be innocent. Be wise. But expect persecution and endure it. And then last week, we really focused on one kind of main thought, and that's if you're going to be like Christ, and that's our goal as disciples and servants of the Lord, then expect to be treated like him. And again, more persecution is going to come our way. And so the Lord told us last week, fear not. Do not, three times in those texts, just a few verses, do not fear, do not fear, fear not. So listen, the Lord cares about what's going on in your heart, 
And now we're going to see as he continues, he's warning them, I'm sending you out. You're going to encounter danger. Don't fear the danger. Everything's on schedule. The Father knows every detail of what's going on in your life. And the worst they can do is kill your body, and which would only usher you into the presence of the Lord. So don't fear when persecution comes. Verse 34. Do not think. He's going to say what not to think. But do you guys already picturing with me? Jesus really cares what's going on inside of us. He cares what we're thinking. He cares what we're feeling. Verse 34. So here's, here's the Lord talking. To the twelve, but we know that it applies to us because of the way it's unfolded. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Don't think that way. Not yet. That's not the plan yet. Do not think that I have come. This would have been a revelation to them. What about what Isaiah says? Isaiah says that the Messiah is supposed to be the Prince of Peace. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. A sword. For I have come to set a man against his father. He's not saying this is all the time. But many times, and we are to accept it. Christ followers are to accept when this happens. He says, I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. Can I imply here? If need be. That's what he's saying. If need be. Verse 35 again. I've come to set a man against his father if need be. And if need be, a daughter against her mother. And a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And again, verse 35, 6. I don't think I'm harming the scripture when I just kind of subtly, Jesus is implying this. If need be, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Like really my own household, it's my own family. So when that happens, Jesus very clearly says, so now we're getting into the classic part of this text. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Let me interject here real quick because it's not going to be part of my message later. Whoever loves father and mother more than Christ is not worthy of Christ. What that means is you're not worthy. Your claim that I am your Lord and your Savior, it doesn't match if you love me less than you love them. If, if, you, if I've honestly saved you from eternal hell, and you say that I am your Lord, and you're my servant, and you're my disciple, and I'm your teacher, then you can't love me less than them. If you love them more than me, then you're not worthy of me. He continues. And whoever loves son or daughter, but love my children. True. You'll love your children more than you love father or mother. It's just the way it falls out. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, is not equal to me, is not fitting to the claims that they say, is not a match to the claims that they say of who I am. Verse 38, and whoever does not take his cross, his cross, it's not Jesus' cross. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Another classic text, verse 39, whoever finds his life, will lose it. Whoever finds his life, whoever finds her life, will lose it. And whoever loses his life, you could take that literally or 
More is, we'll offer both. Whoever loses his life for my sake, martyrdom, shall find it. We'll find it. Now, verse 40 to 42 is a less familiar passage. And frankly, I found it to be a hard passage uh, to understand. I hope we've got the right understanding of it today. Um, it'll be the second point where really, as you can see already, if, if you have a Bible like mine, we're going to try to do two paragraphs today where normally we may only try to do one. Today we're going to try to have two points, uh, and this one will be a lot shorter than the first one, but we'll still hit it. Verse 40. Again, remember who Jesus is talking to. He says, whoever receives you, as I'm sending you out, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Does everybody see the link there? If they receive, I'm sending you out. You have my authority. If they receive you, then they're receiving me. If they receive me, they receive the Father. He doesn't say the Father, but that's who sent him. God the Father sent Christ into the world. Christ sends his ambassadors out. Whoever receives them receives Christ and in turn receives him who sent Christ. Verse 41. And again, here's a more tricky part. The one who receives a prophet. And I'm going to offer later layers of that word, what receives mean. But just the initial is receives their message. The one, the person who receives a prophet. Notice this person is a prophet. They're not an apostle. That was verse 40. Verse 41. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet. So they receive this person and their message because they are a prophet, not because, well, why do you follow that person? Oh, they're dynamic, or they look a certain way, or they have really cool clothes, or they have just interesting mannerisms and kind of an interesting voice, or they have a title. Have you seen all the letters behind their name? No, 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 verse 41. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person. Well, all Christians are righteous. All Christians have been declared righteous once and for all. All Christians are clothed, true Christians are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So obviously the apostles and the prophets are Christians, but now he's apparently talking about another subset. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person. Literally, it's because they, they, they know that this righteous person is associated with Christ. Whoever does that will receive a righteous person's reward. And Jesus closes his discourse here by saying, and whoever gives one of these little ones, could we say this is like a, another category of Christian, whoever gives one of these little ones, they're going to have another name here in a moment, whoever gives one of these little, little ones even a cup of cold water. I mean, this is like the... The least expected expression of hospitality. Could I, could I at least get you some water? Jesus says, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple. Why'd you do that for them? Oh, that's one of Jesus' followers. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Would you notice two things with me this morning? The first one has several subpoints to it. Number one, out of verses 34 to 39, we notice that Jesus creates a line of division. Jesus creates a line of division. Look at verse 34. 
Do not think. So I think what the Lord is saying here, wrong feelings last week, don't fear them. And now, don't think incorrectly. Guys, listen. Wrong thinking will lead to wrong actions. Or it may lead to a lack of action. It may lead to, so wrong thinking may lead to, I know I'm supposed to do that, but I'm not going to do it because I've got, I'm, I'm twisted in my thinking, but I think it's a good idea not to do that. And the Lord wants me to do that, but I'm not going to do it because I have wrong thinking. It starts in verse 34. Do not think. Get this out of your mind. He tells to his followers, his ambassadors, his messengers, his apostles. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. So I've lived half a century, and I know some of you have lived more than that, and several of you have lived less than that. And for some reason, I keep mentioning my age the last month. I don't know what that is. But I've lived half a century. I didn't live in the 60s. So some of you will say, Jeff, eh. In my half a century, I don't remember a time ever like this where there is less peace in the United States. I don't remember a time politically like the last three years. I mean, it has been... Uh, I don't even want to tell you my full heart there. I mean, I, I have a hope. But uh, I tell you what, man, things have got to change just on the way things have been covered and the way it's reported to just the whole tone of what agendas and, and tactics that are being, it's just, I've never seen a lack of peace in that world. And then you add into that the physical thing that is going on around the world with this COVID thing. I've never seen such a lack of peace around the world in that regard. And then you tack on that what's going on here. and So much hatred just among people. So much hatred and pent up. And centuries of this is now just being spewed. It's like we have no peace. We don't have any peace. But I want to give you the good news. Jesus really is the Prince of Peace. And I'm going to promise you, he is going to bring peace to the world at the right time. And when he does, he's going to lift the curse of sin. And when he does, what that means is there's not going to be any more pain. There'll be no more sickness. There will, think of that. Death will be suspended and sorrow will be suspended. We won't be having war. Just get rid of all the war implementations and just turn them into plowshares and things. We're going to turn back apparently a little more agricultural. And people are going to love each other and going to get along. You say, Jeff, that's pie in the sky. No, that's what's coming, just not yet. In the meantime, this thing that we call the gospel, if you put your faith in Jesus, you have peace with God. You, have, you can never lose peace with God. Why? Because I've trusted Jesus. All the punishment for my sin was put by the Father onto Christ, and he punished Christ in my place. Now, I have peace with God. You have it. And can I add to that? The gospel offers us, by faith, the peace of God and peace from God. But what Christ is saying in verse 34 is do not fool yourself for a moment to think that the main reason that Jesus came to earth the first time was to bring peace and harmony to this sinful version of this world. That's not, that would be like him coming and saying, listen, I know there's a few of you trying to live for my father and I know most of you don't. I know there's some of you believe in God and there's some of you that don't and you're living all day. Most of you don't live for God, but listen. God's okay with sin. I just came to bring peace and harmony. We're just all going to get along. He can't do that. So in the meantime, he says that he is bringing a sword. So there's a couple of metaphors used in today's text. The sword is not literal. I, we know this, right? I, I think we know this. Uh, some apparently through the centuries did not know this. Jesus is not talking about a literal forged piece of steel 
that we're supposed to go out and advance his kingdom. He is not promoting using force or intimidation or war to advance his kingdom. So what is this? The sword, verse 34, do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've come... I've not come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword, and it's going to enter into families even. What the Lord is saying is this sword is a sword of division. So there's a group over here. Christ brings a sword, and there's a group over here, and then there's all these other people, and there will be a dividing line. The sword is not physical conflict. It is spiritual conflict. So we're thinking, I'm thinking, Jeff, what exactly causes this conflict when Christ is introduced? I believe the conflict is that the the gospel of Christ demands that people acknowledge and confess that they're sinners. People don't want to do that. It it, it demands that people not just acknowledge and confess, but repent of their sin. No one after salvation immediately becomes sinless and lives the rest of their days sinless. But what we can't do is come bringing our sins, our pet sins, and saying, Lord, I want to come to salvation. I want to trust Jesus. Can I just keep doing these things? You have to repent and turn from your sin. People don't like doing that. But I think maybe more than anything is the exclusive nature of the salvation that Jesus presents. Because frankly, even the Jews could say, yeah, we believe in these things that you just said. But when we interject Jesus and Jesus says, he's the only way to heaven, now that draws a line and people don't like that. They like many ways to heaven. If you're taking notes, write this down. What causes this division? Affirming, so I'm going to give you two parts and both are important. Affirming faith in Christ alone and denying all the other beliefs that contradict the words of Christ inevitably causes division. Again, that's two-part. To affirm, ladies and gentlemen, if you go out of here and you make it a point in your life to affirm, you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as your Savior. But if you, that's going to cause division. But if you go the next step and say that that means that agnosticism and atheism and Shintoism and Mormonism and Roman Catholicism and Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism and add all the other, those are wrong. So we believe the Bible, we believe those are incorrect, we deny those and we affirm Christ. You do that and you're going to create division within your family, some of you. So let's notice three things under this section of this line of division that Christ creates. Because today's text is about discipleship and the high cost. And the Lord says, I want everybody to be, I want my people to be willing to pay the high cost. Number one, we find that Christ outranks earthly relationships. That's what he's calling for. Christ outranks all earthly relationships Verse 35, I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Christ, you see that? Christ outranks all earthly relationships. What I'm about to say is you're going to think, well, Jeff, you're wording that incorrectly. Christianity has torn many families apart. And unfortunately, some of the people in those families have thought this. Man, everything was fine until Christ came into our family. Well, things were not fine. 
the whole family was on its way to hell. And then, praise the Lord, at least some who have come to Christ by faith, at least they are now not on their way to hell. They're on their way to eternal glory and glorifying the Lord through eternity by their life as a trophy of grace. But some will think it was fine before Christ. And the family has been torn apart. These are real. There's some of you sitting here right now. There's somebody watching this, and you're like, things changed when Christianity was introduced into my family. Now, I have grown, I I was reared in a Christian family. My family and Deanna's family on both sides. My kids have a Christian heritage on both sides, but that's not some of you. As soon as I talk about how Christianity has torn families apart, where does your mind go? If a family has a such-and-such religious background, then you could see how Christianity would really cause division in that family. I don't know about you, but my mind goes to several scenarios. I think of Muslim families, and a Christian is born in that. I'm thinking of Jewish families, and one out of the Jewish family or several put their faith. Listen, here's what I'm saying. When a person embraces salvation by grace alone. Literally, God gives salvation for free. We don't do anything except accept that salvation by the grace and free gift of God through Jesus Christ. So we're trusting him. When a person embraces Jesus in that way, then even in Roman Catholic families, there's going to be an opposition within the family. In fact, I dare say, whether it be Muslim or Chinese or, again, they're atheistic. That's the official stance of the country. North Korea, all all of those like that. So you have countries that are like that, and then you have Muslims and Jews, and then you have the Roman Catholics, and we could add many other things. But it's like if a family member turns to Christ, it's like even more offensive to them. I'm thinking of Muslims. You may lose your life, literally, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, no doubt. Millions have lost their life because they came to Christ and the family members are the ones who turned them over. Or the family member is the one who killed them. If they don't kill them, literally martyr them, they will at the least disown them. Jews. A person in a Jewish family who turns to Jesus and recognizes he really is the Jewish Messiah and they trust him as Lord and Savior. We know that for the first up to AD 70, the Jews were the primary persecutors of the church and they did have family members put to death. Nowadays, my understanding is they may actually have a funeral for their family member if they turn to Christ. And they're out. You're dead to us. You may still be living, but you are dead. Roman Catholics... If you turn away from the work salvation of Roman Catholicism to Jesus Christ as Savior just by grace through faith, then they're going to disown you and they're going to cut you off. And it's like you're not welcome in the family anymore. But it doesn't stop there. Those are the obvious. Because I'm thinking of another family. And some of you be like, now that's my family. This family would consider themselves evangelical Christians. They're affiliated with churches. But there are some who, again, let me, let me frame them. They're very comfortable with a theoretical Jesus. They're fine with a comfortable Jesus. But if you let a family member really know God, I mean really know God, and it becomes apparent that they are giving their life to the Lord, and it just it cu- keeps coming out in their speech, in their zeal, in their whole direction of life, Sometimes these families that are comfortable with a theoretical Jesus will get very angry at that family member. Like, what's going on? 
We had plans for you. What do you, you keep talking? You're wearing that down there at the church. You keep going down there. You're always reading the Bible. Honey, you know we believe in the Bible, but you're getting too caught up in this. You're supposed to run the family business after your dad, you know, steps down. We've got plans for you. We had all, and now you're heading this direction. And they get very upset. I think I'm another family. Here's the problem with this family. They're very religious. They're so religious that in their mind, literally, they believe that the whole family has always been Christian. And then one day, one of their kids, preteen, teenager, comes home from camp, comes home from school, comes home from VBS with the kid down the street, went to their church. And all of a sudden, their child says that they put their faith and trust in Jesus as Savior at a particular moment of time, at a particular place. And then that parent hears that. And they're thinking, no, honey, we've, we're, we're Christians. Or what are you talking about? No, at a specific time, at a specific place, I trusted you. No, but honey, we're all What are you implying? That me and your father aren't Christians? Are you implying your brother and your sister aren't Christians? I don't know if you are or not. All I know is I trusted Christ on Wednesday night. Or I trusted Christ Monday night. They'll get really upset. And now there's division has been introduced. Some of you are like me. You've been reared in families that have a heritage of Christianity. But remember this, that it started with somebody. Somebody was the first person who was willing to interject disruption and introduce disruption into the family. That's not me. I'm not going to have you raise your, fan, your hand. But some of you would say, I'm that person in my family. I'm the first one to turn to Christ alone. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, trusting the word of God alone. If that is you... Can I encourage you to fight the wrong way of thinking? And I think what Jesus is trying to put forth before us is to combat this. Some of you are thinking, I'm just not a confrontational person. And there can enter a mindset among some Christians that all disagreements, all, anything that causes a disagreement needs to be avoided. Now, I had you open your Bible, and I hope you've kept it open at chapter 10. Look at verse 27. Is it right for us just to avoid things, even in the family, for the sake of keeping the peace? Jesus says in verse 27, What I tell you, he's talking to his followers, What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. So this idea of, I'm going to be quiet, I'm going to just not speak out. That would be the best thing to do, right? Because it's going to create division. Look down at verse 32. Jesus says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, that includes our family, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know how it's going to come out. It could be, you say, I've, I've come to Christ and I'm the first one in my family. It may be a good long email to all of them that explains what happened. It may be that you pick them off one by one in a car ride, right? And you just share your testimony. It may be at Thanksgiving dinner and somebody says to you, so how's it going in your life? Oh, it's going good. Well, what's going on? Well, actually, I'm, actually, I'm really excited about what God's doing in my life. And I'm getting really involved down at the church. And like, like what? No, no, what, what, what did you say? What's going on there? I've trusted Jesus as my Savior. What does that even mean? I have trusted Jesus. He died on the cross for my sins. I have put my faith and trust in Christ. It may be that. Sometimes we think, no, but that's going to create division. It would be better. 
If you're taking notes, write this down. It is not loving to keep our faith in Christ private. Even if in our mind we have a motive, I'm attempting to keep the peace within the family. Now, I want you to ask yourself, why is that, being quiet, keeping our faith in Jesus private, why is that not a loving action? That is not a loving act because... Hope you hear this. Simple. You say, Jeff, we already know that God, we've got to taste it. That is not a loving act because Jesus is the only way to heaven. If you really believe that, does everybody really believe that? You say, well, there may be other ways to heaven. Hey, if there's other ways to heaven, then you trust Jesus and let your family do their thing. But we, you say, I, I believe the Bible. If you believe the Bible, there is no other way to heaven. And so if Jesus is the only way to heaven, maybe they haven't heard the gospel clearly. I want to propose to you, if they never hear the gospel clearly, then they can't believe what they haven't heard. No one else may ever tell them, God has saved you. It is up to you and I. We need to share our faith and not keep it bottled in in privacy, thinking that we're doing a good thing. Jesus said, no, 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 no. Do not think that way. If you think that way, you're going to end up having a lack of action that is the wrong lack of action. One more thing before we move to the second thought in this section. Notice what he says. But man, I don't want to bring that into my family. I love my family. Jesus says, verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So guys, let's take just a moment and check ourselves. Check your heart. Ask yourself, how would I know? How would I know? Ask the Lord, Lord, how would I know if I love my family more than you? It could be as simple as my emotions tell me, I'm sorry, God, I love them more than you. Then you're in sin. You're not worthy of the title of calling him your Lord and Savior. You should love him more, and I should more. But what if we got past the feelings? Because sometimes we can tell ourselves, oh, I love God more than my family. Now we need to look at how we live. The Bible says very clearly to us as Christians, part of our Christianity is to honor our father and our mother. And I think that never stops. As long as I can, within the bounds of, of the word of God, honor my parents I need to honor my father and my mother. The Bible teaches us as Christians, if you have children, we are to love our children, care for them, provide for them, protect them. All of that is true. But if the situation arises, we must, listen to me, we must never let love of parents and love of children hinder us from fulfilling the work that God has given us to do. We can't let love of parents, but I love, Lord, I love you more. But you actually let the love of parents hinder you from obeying the Lord. Or, Lord, I love you more than my children, but you end up actually making decisions where your children end up causing you to not be in the path of God and in the will of God and in the work of God for your life. I'm literally wondering how many Christians, one or someone, maybe here today, someone watching online, I'm about to describe you. You have had a time very clearly or multiple times where the Lord made it known to you. It could have been in private. It could have been listening to something on the radio. It could be in, in a live preaching situation or all of those. Over and over, the Lord has made clear that he has a special call on your life. And the Lord has actually told you, I want you to leave the vocation that you're in, and I want you to go into this vocation that is part of my special work. I have a special calling on your life. 
or how many Christians have felt very clearly that the Lord is saying, I want you to leave your homeland and go to a foreign land and tell those people about Christ and go make disciples for me over there. But they refused. They, they knew it. They, 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 they were praying. They were growing in the Christian life. They were in the Word of God. They were fed by teaching and preaching. And they know what the Holy Spirit sounds like. And God has repeatedly put a call on their life. But they refuse to do it. And here's the reasons why. If I go over there, if I leave here and go over there, my children may not be safe. And so they have refused to obey the will of God. Or, here's a big one. If I leave my current vocation, because right now I've got a plan I have a little bit of gifting, and I have some schooling, and I'm on this track. If I, if I play my cards right, and a little bit of blessing from the Lord, I'll be able to give my kids the best. And they'll have things that I've never had. And so wanting to give their children the best has kept them from leaving that vocation and going into the work that God has called them to do. Here's another big one. God, I can't go overseas because my parents are coming up on older age and they may not be that healthy. And so what will happen is, this happens among Christians. Years and years and years and decades go by, and the Lord had called them to go over there. But they end up not going over there because they stayed home to help, for, help aging, unhealthy parents. You say, well, Jeff, isn't that a good thing? No. Parents must not be allowed to keep us from fulfilling the clear will of God on our life. He's first place. Again, write this down. I can't guarantee you. I'm not here to say this morning, and again, I'm reading between the lines. It is not automatic that you're going to have a situation in your life where you have to choose between your family and Christ. But if that ever happens, whether we ever have to or not, choose Christ over our family. What Christ is telling us this morning is that the decision must already have been made for Christ. That's what this means. You say, I've, I've never been to that valley of decision, that crossroad. I mean, where I've got to make a decision to leave a job or leave the country, whatever it may be, or start doing something, whatever it may be, if you, if you have to make that decision or not, literally the Lord is saying beforehand, you've already settled it. In fact, another passage of Scripture, Jesus says it this way. The distance between your love for Christ and your love for family should be so great that it looks like you hate your family. He's not necessarily calling us literally to hate our family, but the distance between the two is so great that it looks like. So in other words, here's who I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of Brian and Martha Connard. I can't speak for all missionaries. I don't know what mo motivates all missionaries. I can't guarantee what has motivated Martha and, and Brian to go to Africa and then again on to wherever the Lord may lead them. But here's what all the evidence that I've seen. They love Jesus more than they love their kids. And they love Killian. And they love Alistair. And they love Rose. They love them. But they love Jesus more. Because if they didn't, they'd have probably kept those kids here in the United States. They love Jesus Christ more than the family they have left behind here in the United States. So I can't tell you that you're going to be called to go to a foreign place. But I do know this. We are called to be willing Check your heart. If God called me to go to a foreign field, am I willing to do it? Number two, would you look at verse 38? What we'll find here is Christ outranks self-will and security. Christ outranks self-will and security. Verse number 38. So not only does he outrank every earthly relationship, but verse 38, Jesus says, and 
Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Ladies and gentlemen, let me say it this way. I'm guilty, we're guilty in our society. We throw the word cross around all the time, and we don't put weight to it. The word cross in the days of Christ had a whole other meaning, had a whole other impact. One of the Roman orators and writers, it might have been Seneca, I may be incorrect, but he wrote because he had seen the gruesomeness of a cross, a crucifixion. He wrote that the word cross should never even be uttered. Don't even say that word. Don't say that word. No, what word? Don't, don't say it. It's just, it's just wrong. Don't even think about that. That's horrible. He hated that his nationality, his people, the Roman people, had really perfected this method of, of killing people. I mean, it was a horrible word in that day. Now, Jesus, they don't know it, that Jesus is going to die on his cross, but here he is calling his disciples. Now, you have to take up your cross, and this comes over to Jeff Bartlett and to Graceview. So what is this cross? The word cross in the days of Christ represented many, many things, but if we were to narrow it down, it represented terrifying pain. I mean, terrifying pain. It represented shame, and it represented death. Terrifying pain. I mean, I've thought a little bit about this. I haven't thought a whole lot, probably too much more than I should have. But I'm going to tell you right now, if you were to say a list of 50 ways to die, and you get to pick the ones you would least want to do, I think the number one that I would want off the board is crucifixion. It's got to be the worst way that's ever been invented of killing someone. It was horrifying. It may take days, and it's just agonizing the entire time. Shame. Think of it. Anyone who was walking through the streets carrying the crossbar, the cross part of the cross, and they're followed by Roman soldiers, there's an immediate reaction of people. That's a guilty person. Shame on that person. What have they done? If you had, if you lived in that time and you had a family member that died by crucifixion, that would bring great shame on the family. You wouldn't want people to know it. You would try to keep that down. Don't tell anyone that cousin so-and-so or uncle so-and-so or your father or your brother. Please don't tell anyone. You just want that. You might even move and go to another place where they don't know this. Great, great shame. But ultimately, let's, at the end of the day, it's about death. If you see a person in this time period walking through the streets, be it Jerusalem or another city in the Roman Empire, and they're carrying a cross and they're followed by Roman soldiers, you go ahead and mark it. That's a dead man. That's a dead man walking right there. They're going to die. They're probably going to die today. They'll probably, if not, they'll die tomorrow. That's a dead man walking. So what is this cross Jesus says, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Let me tell you what it is not. Our cross, taking up our cross, is not the following. Our cross is not cancer. And I know some, there's been some Christians who think, I have cancer and that's my cross. Nope, that's not your cross. Chronic pain is not our cross. Car trouble is not our cross. A lost job is not our cross. The last two that I mentioned, the whole car trouble and lost job, the lost job could be your cross if you lost the job because you're a Christian. But if you lost a job because the company's downsizing or you always showed up late or you're incompetent, that's not your cross. That's just you being a bad employee, right? You say, Jeff, car trouble. If your car trouble is something that you haven't been able to address because 
you are following the Lord and the funds are just so tight and it's just, you know something's got to be, and you just can't get to it, then that could be part of your cross. But if it's just, oh, um, car broke down at the worst possible time, I was trying to, just hit, that's, I'm just carrying the cross today. That is not the cross that Christ is calling us to take up. That's not it. Because those things, cancer and chronic pain, and those things happen to unsaved people, and they're surely not carrying a cross. So then we have to ask ourselves, then what is it? One more thing that it is not. This is very important. Taking up our cross is not the way that we get saved. You don't get saved by taking up your cross. So what is it? I'm going to give you a very simple, and I, I looked at this and I thought, Jeff, people on a text like this, we want a fancier definition. We want a a more impactful definition. We want a more enlightening definition. Come on, give us something better. And I'm sorry, I'm going to give you just a bare bones, simple, what I believe the Lord is saying. But don't let the simplicity of this just miss you. What if this is really what it is and what this is what the Lord's calling us to do? Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So I would propose to you to take up our, simple, to take up our cross means to die to self-will every day. Do you understand what I'm just saying? To take up our cross means that like daily, like a living sacrifice, it's almost, it's like we have a conversation with the Lord and let's just be honest, God, this over here is what I want to do today. I'm just going to tell you, I want to, and by the way, I'm going to offer that. I'm going to make my request known. Jesus did. But if my requests are not met, then your will be done. Lord, you know this is my will for this day. This is what I want to do this week. This is what I want to do this year. This is what I want to do for the next 10 years. But Lord, I am going to die to my self-will. It's dying to that every day. Now, what motivates us? We die to that out of obedience to the Lord. Our Lord Jesus Christ says, take up your cross. Kill your self-will. Cause it to die. Let it be the end of you. Songwriter once wrote the following. If I can remember the lyric of the chorus. It says, bring me to. Talking to the Father. Bring me to the end of me. So that I will no longer be the focus of affection. The favored mastery. It is only when I am crucified that Jesus Lord will be. Holy Father, bring me to the end of me. That's dying. Taking up your cross. Dying daily. Why do we do this? Not just in obedience to the Lord, but out of gratitude for the salvation that he's already provided. Notice, we're not taking our cross to get saved. We're taking up our cross because we're so thankful and grateful to our Lord for the salvation he's already provided. Only Christians can take up the cross that Christ is speaking of metaphorically. In fact, if we want to round it out, again, very simple. What is the taking up the cross? Simply put, it means, here it is, nothing Nothing is off limits to Jesus as your Lord. That's it. There it is. Here's, here's taking up our cross. Christ, Father, Holy Spirit, whatever you want, whatever brings you the most glory in my life, that's what I want. I would like these things, by the way. But if that's not in your plan, just literally whatever you have, and I'll take up my cross, and I'll follow Christ. Guys, what I'm reading here is Jesus is demanding, I mean, an all-in attitude. I mean, all-in. Can I even say it this way? What Christ is explaining, if you don't do this, you're not worthy of me. This sounds like Christ is saying, I want you all-in or don't even, don't even bother. Get all-in or don't even bother. 
In Revelation, I'm not, going to turn, I'm not going to read there, but Revelation chapter 3, I believe it is, it is Jesus that says lukewarm. The lukewarm Christian makes him want to vomit, makes me want to throw up. What he's saying is be hot. If you're not going to be hot and on fire for me and following me at all costs, laying down your life, like literally being willing to die if the Lord calls for it, and putting your agenda on the cross and, and just letting it be put as a living sacrifice, my will not be done, your will be done, Lord. And again, if you're will is to let me die. We know that he's talking about literal persecution that could lead to death. Then, Lord, that's fine. Christ is saying, I want hot. If you're not hot, then go ahead and be cold. But that in-between stuff, in and out, that American Christianity makes me sick. So I would ask you, how has your Christianity affected? Everybody answer this in your, in your mind. When you came to Christ, say, I came to Christ just two years ago. Okay, I came to Christ 40 years ago, or you came to Christ three days ago. How has your life started to change? Can you look at ways, say, my life was on this path, and now it is on this path, or you say, the path hasn't changed at all. Then you've not taken up your cross. Number three, and this is verse 39. Not only is Christ calling for a discipleship where he outranks every earthly relationship, and where he outranks our self-will and our security, but I want to exist and I want to survive. And the Lord says, you have to die. Your will has to die. Let my will become your will. Thirdly, he gives us in verse 39 this idea that Christ also outranks personal pursuits and pleasure. Personal pursuits and pleasure. So would you look at verse 39? I'm going to very briefly take a literal view at this, and then I'm going to try to take another way of looking at verse 39 that I think is kind of... Maybe even the main point, I'm, again, maybe equal point. The literal view doesn't take but literally just a moment. Watch. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever finds his life, whoever finds his life. In other words, this person pursues life on earth without Jesus. Jesus says, whoever finds his life, okay, you go ahead and live your life without me. Whoever finds his life, you're going to lose your life because through eternity, you're going to go to hell and you're not going to heaven. You're going to be separate from me. If you want to live on earth separate from me, then you're going to live for eternity separate from me. Whoever finds his life, this is about me, then you're going to lose your life. Second part of the verse, whoever loses his life, like literally you may die for, the, for my sake, for Jesus' sake, because of your life for Christ and your work for Christ and your testimony for Christ. Jesus is saying, even if you die down here, you're going to find it. You're not giving up anything, I promise. The moment they kill you, you'll find out you're just now entering real life. So there's the literal view. And now let's take another way of looking at verse 39. Would you look at the first part? Look at... Let your eyes focus, like literally on the page. Whoever finds his, whoever finds his or her, whoever finds his life will lose it. One of the things that stands out to me is this word finds. The way it unfolds here, I don't think this person stumbles upon, oh, look what I discovered. I found life. This is the idea of a person searching, hunting, looking for, pursuing Watch what Christ is saying. Whoever finds, oh, I found it. I've been after this, and I finally got it. Whoever pursues, now the next key word I think is his. Can I propose to you that finds, pursues, hunts for his life? I think what this is saying is his version of life. 
his or her, your version of what you think is the good life. This is the good life. Jesus says, whoever, the idea on this earth, whoever pursues, hunts, searches for the good life on earth, you're going to lose it. You're going to lose it. Again, if you're taking notes, I believe that verse 39a means to selfishly search for the meaning of life and to search and pursue the very purpose of existence in this life only. It's to live this way. Verse 39, whoever finds his life, Jesus says you're going to lose it. This is a person who honestly believes, I believe that my purpose, my reason for existing can be found in this life. It's really all about this life, and so I'm going all in on this life. I'm not worried so much about the next life. I'm going to find my life here and now. However many years I have, I'm going to live it for me, looking for what I believe is the good life. People wouldn't say this. Every now and then you'll find somebody actually bold enough, driven enough to actually say these things. But rarely, you won't find a Christian, I don't think, that would say this. But it's how we live. You say, what? I believe that there are many people who think and live their life as though the per Follow me. This is important. The whole purpose of existence is possessions. It's possessions. Like literally, they wouldn't say it. Hey, as a Christian, what do you think is the purpose of life? Oh, it's, it's to get possessions on earth, as many as you can get. Nobody's going to say that. Nobody around here better never say that. Don't ever say that. Do we live that way? There are a lot of people who wouldn't say that, but boy, they live as though life on earth is about possessions, how many can I get, and wealth, accumulation, more, like just, that's what life's about. Got to get more wealth, more and more and more. That's what it's about. That's why I was made, because that's how they live. Others, it's about power. They just want to be in charge, even if they don't make as much. They want to tell other people. They want to be over people. They want people to look up to them. They want titles. Give me a title. It's about power. That's, what, that's the purpose of life to them. There are some people, uh-oh, now we're getting to us. Food. What's life about? Food. How do you know this? Because we think about it like not just before we eat our three meals and three snacks a day. It's like we think about it all day long. The purpose of living is food. There's others that food's nice. Drinks. Drinks. Man, I can't, can't get together for drinks tonight. But tomorrow night, I'll get together. You know, it's Sunday night. Friday night, baby, we're going to get together for drinks. It's Saturday night and all weekend. That's what life is about food and drinks. Some people, this literally, they would never say this, but how they live. Life, the purpose, the meaning of life, the essence of life is clothes, appearance, popularity. I just want people to like me. And some, let's be honest, life's about sports and travel. Here's the problem. All of those things can and will be taken away. They can be taken away. You got the title. You got the power. Well, an election took place. You don't have the power anymore. You don't have the title anymore. 
a takeover at the firm, a takeover at the company. A fire or theft took away your possessions and your wealth, a downturn in the economy. What I'm about to say, I'm not joking. Loss of taste buds. If you're living for food and drink, let me just say this, a little side note, give me about 15 seconds. If you are, anyone out there, anyone here, if you're experiencing loss of taste buds suddenly, and you've never had that in your life, you need to go get tested for COVID-19. I got five bucks, says you're probably positive. Okay? It stinks. It's like the worst part of the whole thing for me. It's like I couldn't taste food for like 12 days. It's like, what's the point of living? Oh, wait, Jeff, that's right, you're the preacher. Matthew 10, there's something bigger in life. Oh, yeah, you got to remember that. Yeah. More than food, right? More than I love food. I love things that taste. It was it was rotten. That was horrible. Man, bless their heart. Some people lose lose their taste buds for life. This can be taken from you by old age. Hey guys, if it's all about sports and you lose the key player, you lose the key key game. You have the lost season, or you miss the window of opportunity that would have had. Then what's the point of life? It's all gone. If it's about popularity, then what happens when you're rejected? And ultimately, guys, we're going to die physically. If all of these things really are the essence, meaning, and the whole purpose of existence, then when you die physically, then your whole purpose of existence is now gone. What if we viewed it differently? Those things are gifts from God, but they're not the essence that we are to pursue. Here's what I want to tell myself. And us. Ladies and gentlemen, it is not what we say. It's how we live that reveals what we really believe. Let me say that again. It is not what we say. Because none of us would say as Christians that go to Graceview where the Bible is taught and preached. None of us would say, oh, the purpose of existence is possessions and earthly power and titles and food and drinks. And like, y'all understand none of those things are going to be in heaven. We're not going to eat this food and drink these things. We're not going to wear these clothes and we're not going to have this appearance. We're not going to have these possessions. None of that. None of these things on earth. We're not going to be so excited about traveling to these sites. And these earthly sports are not going to matter. Surely they've got golf in heaven, though, right, Brother Tyler? Surely. But none of these things are going to matter. So it's not what we say, but how we live that really reveals what we believe. So I taught in a Christian school for 21 years. We had these things called fire drills. The third administrator that I had, the last one, I remember one day, and I'd never heard it before, he said, we've got to get these kids out faster. I'm like, oh, I don't know if it wasn't important before, but he, he apparently had a stopwatch on it, and he, he was really kind of a stickler, and he said, we've got to get these kids out faster. And it occurred to me, well, they're not leaving very quickly because they know it's a fire drill. If people really thought there was a fire and not a fire drill, then they would exit very differently than they do currently. If you thought there was a real fire, now we would probably have to say, stop trampling people in order. But right now, ah, that's a fire drill. Everybody know where to go. And they're grabbing their versus books to study, going to cram real fast for a history test that they should have done last night. Maybe want to go by the bathroom and go get something out of the locker. Like, no, pretend there's a fire. Would you at least? Not what we say, but how we live really shows what we believe. Here we go. Y'all ready? I'm talking to me as I'm coming up in a couple of decades from now. I'm talking to me. There are many Christians who say one thing, but they live, listen, 
They live as though their wish list was the main great point of life. They say one thing, but the way they live, the wish list is the great point of life. Jesus says whoever finds his life will lose it. So there's a sense, yes, you, you choose life without Christ, you will lose for eternity. But I think he's also talking to Christians here. If you choose what you believe is the good life, then you're going to miss in heaven certain things that I had for you, and you're going to wish you hadn't lived that way. I almost, but I didn't do it, I almost pulled out Jonathan Edwards' resolutions and some of the things that this guy, just as like a 17, 18-year-old, just wrote down that he resolved to live a certain way. He had this other-world mentality. I want to live for the best in eternity for Jonathan Edwards by not getting caught up in this life, getting the best for Jonathan Edwards in this life. This is what Christ is talking about. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake. So what if I like... Don't pursue the good life all the time. Christ says, oh, well, you're going to find life. Again, many Christians live as though their wish list was the great point of life. They think the goal is to work hard, to build enough wealth. For what? To retire well. What do you mean retire well? You've got to work hard, build enough wealth to retire well. Well enough what? Well enough to do all the things that you've always wanted to do. Guys, what I'm about to describe is a very sad situation. I'm talking about saved people. I'm talking about American Christians often. Many reach a point of financial security, but they finish. This is crazy. They finish the, I need to hear this in a few years. They hit a point. It was a little bit of financial security, but they live the last 15 or 20 years of their healthy living as nothing but pleasure mongers. It's all for pleasure all the time, full throttle. They not only retire from the company, they retire from God. I mean, they used to serve God, used to make disciples, and now they can't point to the last person where in any way they're using all the gifts and investment experience and all the walking and the highs and the lows with the Lord where they're making disciples anymore. Why? Well, I retired. I retired. I retired. Okay. That's great. You retire from the company. Retiring on God is nowhere in this book. It is nowhere in here. It doesn't exist. It's totally fabricated. Man, it takes over our day. It takes over our land. Guys, I'm talking about Christians who got saved in their teens or 20s or 30s. I mean, they serve God 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And instead of just staying steady, can I make a quick admission? They hit this point in life, and let's just admit this, the energy level is a lot lower. So the energy level is lower. But the crazy thing, instead of staying steady as the finish line is approaching, the finish line is getting closer. And now they have surplus time and maybe some surplus money or a combination of surplus time and money. And you know what happened? I mean, the finish line's been faithful all these years. Divert over on a path of selfishness that Satan's over here going, hey, look over here. And the culture's going, look. It's as though there's a mentality. Again, you wouldn't say it, but it's kind of subtle, understood. I've earned some me years. I've earned some me years. And I need to get the me years in while I'm still healthy enough. I've served God all those other years. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life. I need to make a couple things clear and I'm going to hit the second point and it'll be a lot shorter. Please hear me. Having nice things 
is not automatically sinful. Having nice experiences are not automatically sinful. Those are blessings from God. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. That's what I meant to say. So it's not automatically. But guys, if a year of your life goes by and it's defined by you, 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 indulging yourself, if a decade ends up being defined by meism, that is a wasted decade. Can I offer this? And I get it, it looks enticing. But the energy level's low. Okay. If we die with a list of unfulfilled accomplishments that we wanted to do, we call it bucket list. But if we die with an unfulfilled list, we didn't check everything off because we chose to give our life to Christ, can I just offer it? That's okay. That is okay. Eternity matters more. Would you look with me at verses 40 to 42 with this thought? Being blessed for blessing God's people. So many directions we could go. These two passages do not cancel each other out. They actually complement each other. Second thought this morning, being blessed for blessing God's people. Notice verse number 40. This word receives is, comes up here eight times. Jesus says, whoever receives you. By the way, can I pause right there? In literal specific context of this chapter, who is you here? Like literal, specific. Who, are, who is the you? The 12 apostles, the 12 disciples. Now look at verse 40. Jesus says to them, and we know that this applies to us. He says, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Now, I'm not going to be on the screen. Would you look back over at verses 14 and 15? Same discourse. Here's what we're going to find. Jesus is getting ready to tell us what happens to those who reject his messengers. Verse 14. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, then shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. In other words, it's going to be really bad on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah. It'll be worse for those who reject. Hey guys, you 12, I'm sending you out. You're going to tell people, my kingdom is coming, that the kingdom is here, and I'm the Messiah, and I'm the Christ, and I'm the Son of God. If they reject your message, then it's going to be worse for them because Sodom and Gomorrah never had a Bible. And they never knew that the Christ, the Messiah, was anything to be looking for. And they sure didn't know that his name was Jesus of Nazareth. So if these people, you go tell them that message, and they reject that, it's going to be worse for them than the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah that God destroyed even while on earth. Now here's what I notice. These three verses tell us what happens to those who receive God's messengers. Write this down. Jesus, according to verse 40, Jesus and God the Father and the gospel are a package deal. Jesus, God the Father, and the gospel are a package deal. In other words, you can't have one without the other. They go together. They go together. Jesus says, hey, we're a package deal. It's this. No one can say, I really like Jesus. I just don't like the God of the Bible. Yahweh, he's mean. He's got all these laws and rules. I like Jesus. He's about grace. And he disrupted the religious people. And he healed people. I kind of like him. I want Jesus, but I don't want God. You can't have that. 
nor can you be like the Jews. I want Yahweh. I want the God of the Old Testament, but I don't want his son. No, you, you can't have the father without having the son. Nor can you say, I want Jesus and I want the father. I just don't like the gospel that talks about how we're sinners. I don't really think we're that bad. Or I don't like the part where it says the only way to be saved is by putting our faith in Jesus. I want Jesus, and I want the Father, and I want to go to heaven. But I think that here's another way. No, you can't pick and choose. You have to accept the gospel as it is. You have to accept the gospel of our sin, God's holiness, God's justice, and he must punish our sin. His love, sending his son, and the grace part where the only way to get saved is by faith. You can't work for it. God just gives it for free. You have to take it as it is. They all go together. It's a package deal. Another important thing. Whoever receives you, he's telling his apostles as they're getting ready to go out and preach, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. You see the connection. So I want to offer this next thought to you guys. Whether in a written form. See that? There's a track. Whether it be in written form, or can I say it this way? Whether it be in the written form of literally just the Scripture. Whether it be, here, here we go, whether written or spoken, the gospel is received from human messengers. Simple thought, but it matters. Whether written or spoken, the gospel is received from human messengers messengers. Let me tell you about my life. In 1979, I put my faith and trust in Jesus. I trusted Jesus Christ, him only, and he saved me. I want to make that very clear. I trusted Christ. I asked him to save me. He saved me, but you want to know what happened before that? You say, what happened before that? Before I trusted Christ and was saved, I received Ed Yeoman as a man of God, Ed Yeoman, as a person who was telling me God's word truthfully. Before I trusted Christ, I received Ed Yeoman's message. Because the gospel is received from human messengers. This is God. Let's us enter into his work. And now we're starting to feel the responsibility of that. We have a part in this. You say, well, I don't have to have a human being. I just read the Bible. Right. With the Holy Spirit driving the whole process and sovereignly being in control of the process, human beings wrote this book. And so the apostles primarily wrote the New Testament. And so in written form or verbally, the gospel comes to us through human messengers. Now look very quickly. Very quickly, verse 40, 41, 42. Whoever receives you, receives me. They have to receive you, though. This, that, that happens first. Whoever receives you, receives me. Whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, again, as I said earlier, because he is a prophet, this person says, I'm going to listen. There's something about this Ed Yeoman fella. I'm nine years old, but he just, I can tell. His is the message of God. It is ringing true. Holy Spirit's pounding in my heart. Verse 41, the one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person Receives a righteous person's reward. Now watch verse 42. Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water. So wait a minute. This receiving apparently has layers to it. So I want to offer the following. To receive. Eight times this word comes up. They receive you. Then they get me and the Father. Earlier we found out they don't receive you. Okay. Hey guys. 
in a moment I'm going to be nearing the end, but I want you to get what I'm about to say. What is this receiving? I'm going to offer that to receive first means to accept their message as true. I accept your message as true. You have apparently the gift of prophecy to proclaim the truth of God, and it's ringing true. I receive it, and then you receive the Lord. Or here's a person, they're a righteous person. They may not have the gift of prophecy, but here they are telling me about, they may not have the gift of prophecy to teach and expound and preach, prophesy, but boy, they are telling me about the Lord Jesus Christ, and I can tell they are a righteous person. All right. I've adjusted something. Am I on? All right. Um. Okay. The handheld. There you go. Now I'm a one-armed preacher. Very quickly, let's finish this message. To receive them is to receive their message as true. But I want to go further than that because these words have actually been translated as welcomes. Whoever welcomes. So I'm giving you the tone. I'm, I'm going to have to, for time's sake, skip. You just go back and look at this and study it over and over. See if you think this is true. To receive them is to first receive their message, but then it is also to welcome them with hospitality. In other words, these were itinerant traveling people. I believe your message is true. You can stay at my house, or I'm going to give you something, or I have this expression of hospitality. It could even be something as small as a cup of cold water. But furthermore, I think it goes beyond that. To receive is not just your message is true, here's some hospitality, but I am now going to support your work for the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's what the Lord is saying in receiving them. William Barclay words it this way, and I'm going to put a longer quote, I'm going to splice it together. Barclay, so everybody catch this. He says, we cannot all be prophets and preach and proclaim the word of God. But, skipping ahead, When true greatness is measured up in the sight of God, notice he says these people that receive them are going to receive the prophet's reward, the righteous person's reward, and if they give a cup of cold water to the little ones, these disciples, that will not be lost. They will not lose their reward. He says we cannot all be prophets and preach and proclaim the word of God, but when true greatness is measured up in the sight of God, it will be seen again and again that the man who greatly moved the world I insert Paul, Billy Graham. When true greatness is measured up in the sight of God, it will be seen again and again that the man who greatly moved the world was entirely dependent on someone who, as far as the world is concerned, remained unknown. I know about Lydia at Philippi. She is apparently a big supporter of Paul. There was a whole lot more that are unnamed in the Scripture. And they're going to get in on Paul's reward. Billy Graham didn't just go out and do everything by himself. There were people 
that received his message. I believe he has a gift. I believe he has the message of God. And here's some hospitality, but here's some support for you and your ministry. This is what Christ is calling us to. I look at this list of words, you, which I know is talking about the apostles in verse 40. Prophets, righteous persons, little ones slash disciples. Who are these? Can I offer to you that these are Christians? These are all Christians. All of those are titles of Christians who are at different stages in the Christian life. Watch this. And who have different spiritual gifts. The apostles, there are only 12 of them, and then throw in Paul as a unique apostle to the... There are only 13 of those guys. So those are the apostles. Prophets, no doubt through the years, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, have God decided to give them a gift of preaching and proclaiming, declaring the truth of God, whether it be prophetic in the future or talking about the current now. But all Christians are righteous persons. And then you have to say, Jeff, who are these little ones? Can I, I'm, I'm going to throw out, I don't know for sure. I think these little ones may be like new Christians, untrained Christians. Your last note this morning is this. These represent Christians, different phases, different stages of the Christian life, different spiritual gifts, but all of them are loved by Jesus. And so as I look at this list in verse 40 to 42, what I find is a descending order of earthly prominence. But there is no descending order of eternal significance. Very important. You need to understand that note. There is a descending order of earthly prominence. There's the apostles. Look, they have the gift of prophecy. That's a righteous person. Who's that over there? Oh, that's just a new Christian. We'll see what they end up being. There's a descending order of earthly prominence, but not of eternal significance. And here's why that's important. Even as something as small as a cup of cold water given to any of them on that list, the Lord Jesus Christ says even a cup of cold water, very small, very insignificant, is actually a legitimate investment in the kingdom of the Lord that He will reward. So I close this morning with this exhortation. My job is to tell you guys what God offers and to encourage you to take advantage of it. That's my job. I need you to pretend in your moment. We're all going to have to pretend. I'm telling you, you'll have to pretend. One of the things. Here it is. Number one, pretend that you're a multi-billionaire. There's where you got to use your imagination. I, do you understand what I'm saying? Not a million dollars. You don't have a million dollars. I'm not talking about stock that rises and falls. No, he's the richest man in the world. Now, that's the richest man in the world. No, I'm not talking about that. I mean, you've got cold, hard cash in the banks. Multi-billionaire. You understand? We're not talking about $10 million. We're not talking about you have $100 million. We're talking about you have $999 million. Oh, and we're going to kick another million to make it a billion. But you're not a billionaire. You're a multi-multi. You got it? Money is no object. Now, here's the second thing. You love your family. You greatly love your family. I mean, you, not like you love your family right now. All your money has not corrupted you. You have all, I mean, more than you'll ever spend. You've got it. And you, you love your family. And then you discover that someone provided for your family member or protected your family member 
in a moment of great life-threatening need. You're a multi-billionaire. You love your family. And you find out that someone provided and protected them in a life-threatening moment. What are you going to do for them? What are you going to do? Your daughter marries her newlywed husband. They're on some part, and they're going down probably a bad section, but they've gone good section, driving over to a good section. I had to go through a little bad section. It was late in the evening. The car broke down. Somebody stopped. They literally were harassing and about to physically abuse them. But another person came in, ran them off, fixed the car, got them to their destination. She comes back home from her, from her honeymoon and says, you're not going to believe on this night, this night, and that. And you're like, what happened? What? They did what? And he did what? Did you get the guy's name? Do you know where he lives? Oh, yeah, we wrote it down. I want that. I want that. The day is going to come where Jesus will tell a group of people, I was hungry. Everybody listen. I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was a stranger. I was naked. I was sick. I was in prison. But you gave me food. You gave me water. You gave me shelter. You gave me clothing. You visited me when I was in prison. They're going to say, when did we do this? And he'll say, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. I promise I close with this. God is omniscient. God sees all things. I'm not making levels of omniscience. God sees all things, but his eyes are especially on the, listen, he's especially watching, interested in those who go to foreign fields to declare Christ. He's especially watching those who are evangelistic. He's especially watching those who are just making disciples. He's especially has his eyes on those who teach and preach and declare his word faithfully. He especially has his eyes on those who are helping needy people in all kinds of ways in Jesus' name. He has his eyes especially on those people and anyone who blesses those people. You and I would do well. It's my job to tell you this. Based on what Jesus says in verse 40 to 42, you and I would do well to support, to welcome, to show hospitality, to receive. But again, support. If he will bless even a little thing like a cup of cold water, my mind says then what would he do with a greater gift? What if we didn't do a one-time? What if we did repeated, regular, sacrificial? Oh, he won't miss it. He has his eyes on these people doing his work and on those people who are supporting his work. So why should we invest in his work and in his people doing his work? I'll tell you why. Because God is not a multi-billionaire. That's why you should invest. Heads bowed, eyes closed. In a moment, we're going to pray. And we'll be dismissed. And as we do... Check your heart. Can you honestly say, Christ, and you know all things, can you tell him, Lord, I love you more than my family. Lord, I love you more than my friends. Lord, I love you more than security. Lord, I love you more than personal pursuits. If not, would you confess to him, Lord, I need to love you more. I've not been living worthy of you. 
just in your own heart between you and the Lord. I wouldn't even know this. There's no way I could know this, so I need you to ask. Just bring the Lord into focus. He knows. Answer, yes or no. Have you obeyed all of God's personal calls on your life? Or have you let love of family divert you and hinder you? God knows. Go face to face with the Lord. And I ask, and He will hear your heart, and He will know the truth. Answer. Have you held back any part of your life from the Lord? Protected it? Kept it back? It's not been put on the cross. It's not been on the altar of sacrifice. I just wonder, as I ask those first questions, did your spirit have a check at any point in there? If so, we need to feel the weight of discipleship. Jesus is saying, I want you to love me above all else. Is there a personal pursuit that has captured your attention so much that it dominates? I'm not talking about blessings of God where he gives us and we enjoy those God gives his people good things to enjoy. I'm talking about personal pursuits that have taken over and just choked him out. And so lastly, I ask us, how are you using your spiritual gifts to do the work of God? And how are you supporting those who do the work of God? Guys, I'm telling you, this is real. And all this is about to wrap up really soon. This world's about to wrap up soon, and God's not playing games. He means it. Even a cup of cold water to one of his, even the little ones that are disciples. What would he do if we're faithful and sacrificial? Father, I pray that you would. this passage into our hearts. I know it's a long sermon today and had some distractions to it. But Lord, I pray that you'll work it into my heart. I pray that I will take up my cross and follow you and sacrifice my will every day, that I will love you more than anyone else on earth and that the distance between you and them is so far that it would look like I hate them because I always choose you and let us have a whole church filled with people that do that. Lord, let us be serving you. And Lord, give us wisdom. Help us to truly bless those that are doing your work. Bless your people. And Lord, it's okay if you motivate us with a fact that you will bless us, mostly in eternity, and that we have these lives, these short lives, to take advantage of such a promise. Lord, let us do that and be found faithful. I pray that you'll further your kingdom through us this week. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for your patience. Pray you guys will have a tremendous week serving the Lord. Have a great week.